Good afternoon. Um, my name is Teresa Edmonds, and I work in the Programs and Publications Department here at Central. And I just want to take time to say welcome this afternoon. I know you could be doing other things. It's such beautiful weather out there. But we are so happy that you are here. And so at this time, I would like to introduce Tara. She works for the Commission on Civil Rights. And so I'm going to turn the program over to her. Sit back, relax, and have a lot of questions to that we will answer for you. Thank you again for coming. Good afternoon, everyone. So nice to see you. Uh, my name is Tara Taylor. I'm with the Maryland Commission on Civil Rights. If you aren't familiar with us, there's some brochures on the outside table that you can grab on the way out. We are an independent state agency, and we enforce Maryland's anti-discrimination laws. So if you feel that you were discriminated against by someone in your employment or related to housing or if you were trying to gain access to a public place and you felt that they were treating you in a discriminatory manner, you could file with our office. We're actually just a few blocks away in the William Donald Schaefer Tower, that kind of copper color building with the flags on top on uh, St. Paul and Baltimore streets. And we're thrilled for this first time partnership with the Pratt Library. Um, the film is, as you can see, just about 53 minutes. So we're gonna run the film. And then um, we have a fabulous moderator, Annika Simpson, standing over there from Morgan State University. And we will also have three panelists that star in the film as well. So afterwards, we'll raise the screen, and there's a table back there, and we'll have um, opportunity to answer questions and um, really discuss what's going on in the film. So we welcome you and, and look forward to the discussion afterwards. We are What I will do to get us started is um, give you the bios of the speakers that are going to be with us. Sitting next to me is the wonderful Samantha Master. She is a black, queer, feminist activist, advocate, and educator from Washington, D.C., and has worked extensively within communities of color to organize and build analysis around LGBT and gender justice issues. She is the African-American Leadership and Engagement Specialist at Planned Parenthood and is a member of the Black Youth Project 100. Tweet her at the fire next time. She's also one of my former students and dear to my heart. Um, we will also be joined by Sharon Letman-Hicks, who is in the film. She is the Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer of the National Black Justice Coalition, a civil rights organization dedicated to empowering black, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Renowned for her political acumen and an ability to bring together unlikely allies as stakeholders in joint collaborations, President Barack Obama named her to the President's Advisory Commission on Educational Excellence for African Americans in 2014. She has appeared on broadcast and in print media nationally, including CNN, MSNBC, The Washington Post, Black Enterprise Magazine, The Tom Joyner Morning Show, and TheRoot.com. Walking on stage now is the Reverend Dr. Delman Coates. He is the senior pastor of the Mount Enon Baptist Church in Clinton, Maryland, where I believe he was preaching this morning, which is why he's joining us now. He is a graduate of Morehouse College and earned his doctorate in New Testament and early Christianity at Columbia University. A widely published author, his preaching and teaching ministry enables him to minister at churches, seminaries, and conferences around the nation. 
He is a member of the Morehouse College Board of Preachers, the NAACP, a board member of the Parents Television Council, and a board member of the National Action Network. Hello. Thank you for being here. Annika, if I can just also mention, we're excited that this is going to be recorded um, as a live podcast and then available for others to use. So if you have a question and you don't mind using this microphone or the one that's up there, we'll make sure we capture your, your question for audiences who may be listening to this later. So panelists, for the sake of time, I'm going to ask you to hold your responses to about two or three minutes because we want to make sure that the audience is engaged at the end. First question, the new black chronicles a deep investment that each of you had in the passage of marriage equality in Maryland. Given your work on the state level, what did the Supreme Court's ruling on marriage equality mean to you? And what are your reflections on the positive culmination of your long-standing efforts? So I think it's important um, for me to note that the day the Supreme Court um, issued its ruling um, on Oberfeld, Obergefell versus Hodges, which was the marriage equality decision, um, Baltimore was burning, right? So we were reacting to the aftermath of the murder of Freddie Gray. Um, and in the role I was at at that time, um, it was required that all of the staff people at the organization I worked for go to the Supreme Court to celebrate the ruling. Um, and it was something that I was deeply angry about. Um, I have, my family's been in Baltimore for the last 100 years. My family's indigenously from Maryland um, since my, my mother's ancestor was brought over as an enslaved person. And so this is my home space. And um, there is, I had a lot of, of anger um, standing at the Supreme Court, which I only did for about 10 minutes in a shirt that said, black, queer, and here, right? And so um, the, the marriage equality ruling, while, while I think an important hallmark of the ways, especially over the past 30 years, um, LGBT people have been able to move into a public light, um, was deeply underwhelming for me. It was underwhelming for me because of the time it was in, but it was also underwhelming because my fight within the marriage equality um, conversation wasn't necessarily for marriage equality. It was for an expanded way that we as black people talk to each other and hold each other as kindred, right? And so many of us have LGBT sons, daughters, parents, um, loved ones, community members, um, who often face violence. And so I was much more invested in having a cultural conversation about the ways that we are holding each other rather than a conversation about marriage, which is something I don't even believe in, right? I don't, I don't believe in marriage as an institution. And so that's what it meant for me. Thank you. And good, after, good afternoon. Um, my apologies for being tardy. And uh, certainly want to thank Dr. Simpson for the invitation. For me, I, I felt this, I felt. Like Samantha, I think I felt the same sort of um, struggle having been uh, back and forth uh, to Baltimore uh, during the Freddie Gray, um, that moment, um, bringing members of our church, busing members of our church and community uh, here to the city and meeting with clergy and pastors and community. Uh, activists, there was this interesting sort of uh, internal tension that I felt as well. 
Um, but on the marriage equality side, I felt a great deal of relief uh, and a sense of um, affirmation for me because for the past at, for the past four years, I've struggled a great deal with those in the faith community who would attempt to legislate based upon their uh, particular personal doctrinal and theological uh, beliefs. And I think this was a huge victory in uh, moving our country forward and away from those who would attempt to take us back to a time when bias is justified under the guise of religious belief. And so I thought it was a huge victory. Um, I, I just felt a huge sense of vindication because it's been personally quite difficult professionally for me having uh, come out for marriage equality as a black uh, Baptist minister uh, in a state with a lot of large mega churches you know, and we have a large congregation. And while our congregation has continued to grow and to flourish, I think because the people get it, the people in the pews understand what's at stake and don't want to be on the side of codifying discrimination uh, under the law, the clergy, that's a, a different animal. Um, and um, I have said in other settings that the clergy can be like the economy, a lagging indicator. And um, the people get it, but the clergy have been slow to come around. And so I've personally felt, Dr. Simpson, a great deal of, you know, you know, vindication. Um, it's been a it's been a tough, you know, time for me. Um, and so I'm really glad we got that victory. I think my uh, next question my next question uh, piggybacks on what Reverend Coates touched on. So as we well know, the Supreme Court's ruling has not changed many people's religious belief that same sex or same gender love is a sin. So how would you address the claim that Christianity doesn't support black folks who are lesbian, gay, and bisexual? Because we still have that attitude. Well, for me, as I've gone around the country, I've always felt it important to suspend the theological question because I don't want a liberal theocracy any more than I want a conservative theocracy. So uh, the marriage equality issue is, for me, decidedly a public policy matter. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get there. And, and so for me, it's been important on these campaigns and referenda that have come up around the country from, for us to create this kind of, exp I think we passed marriage equality in Maryland in 2012 because we expanded this movable middle. Uh, at least for me and my work in the faith community and black religious circles, by saying to pastors, look, regardless of where you are theologically and personally, the fact of the matter is, as a matter of uh, the, you know, uh, public policy, everyone deserves equal treatment under the law. That said, you know, th there is uh, this perception that the church is fundamentally opposed to LGBT equality. I tend to reject this notion. I think that you cannot tell the story of Christianity. You cannot tell the story of my own faith tradition, the black church, without talking about the involvement, active, central involvement of our gay and lesbian 
sisters and brothers. You cannot talk about the black church, civil rights, black preaching, black music, any of this without talking about the contribution of our gay and lesbian sisters and brothers. And, and, and I'm, I'm finding lately that in my more recent work and conversations that it's important for me as a clergy person and pastor to say as a Bible-believing pastor, and I regard myself as a person who believes in Scripture, I'm a Bible scholar. My Ph.D. is in early Christianity and New Testament. I think it's important for me to affirm that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. That the seven passages of Scripture that are often quoted and appropriated by people in the church to clobber gays and lesbians as being condemnations of homosexuality are not condemnations of consensual same gender loving people that these texts and I would say all of them are condemnations of acts of sexual violence rape abuse and exploitation and this is not the, doesn't provide the forum for going through those seven but when you read these texts in Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible and in Greek in the New Testament it's very clear to me that these are texts that are condemnations of sexual abuse and exploitation and practices that existed in the ancient world. I'm writing a book now that attempts to clarify this issue for many people in the church that I think are sincerely trying to live out their faith because scripture is their source of authority on matters of faith and practice. The problem is that many of the colloquial English translations that we have unfortunately uh, distort what uh, the scriptures in their original languages say. So rather than saying something like sex traffickers will not inherit the kingdom of God or pedophiles will not inherit the kingdom of God or those who sanction and endorse prostitution, male prostitution, which are practices that are existing in the ancient world, which the biblical writers are addressing. Um, these translators use terms like homosexuals shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This is very problematic and gives people the wrong impression about what these texts are condemning. And so for me, I support LGBT equality, not despite the Bible, and I think this is important to make because when you see a lot of leading evangelical pastors on television and they're asked about what are your thoughts about homosexuality in the Bible, they assume that it's clear what scripture says about homosexuality. And for them, it means that the Bible condemns homosexuality. And they then go on to say, well, despite that, I still love, you know, gay and lesbian members of our community and church. Well, I don't support gays and lesbians despite the Bible. I support LGBT equality because of it. And that's a very different point of departure for me. All right. <laughs> He's got the degrees. As um, I think Samantha touched on, and it also was briefly mentioned in the film, that marriage equality was not the primary or paramount issue for many black folks in the LGBTQ movement. So with the marriage equality ruling behind us, where is the social justice focus now? So if you could talk a little bit about the work that you're doing now. Yeah, so I think that um, marriage equality has not now 
um, nor has not, is not now, has not been, nor will it ever be the central focus of black LGBT people. And I think what the focus going forward is depends on your income status, your race, and, um, and how you define LGBT equality, right? And I often take issue with um, equality because I think that it, deter- it, it requires that um, gays, that, that gays and lesbians, which is the main focus of that, um, is able to access the same systems that um, our heterosexual straight counterparts um, are able to access, right? And I want to push back against that. I believe that if you are coming to the table with a justice-centered lens, then you are not seeking equality, you are seeking liberation. And so I, I believe that we do not have to set our sights so low as to only aim for, for one or two things. I think what liberation looks like to me is envisioning um, and actualizing a world where anyone, regardless of migration status, race, class, gender, age, um, uh, any of the so- social barriers can have sexual and reproductive um, autonomy, right? And we can have sexual and reproductive freedom, um, and that is not hindered by who we love, how we love, or um, where we love, right? And so that is, I think, what I, the, the underpinnings of how I like to approach questions of LGBT liberation. Um, what does that look like in kind of an issue-based campaign, I think, Um, we would be remiss to not address the um, staggering and horrific rates of violence against black transgender women. Um, A sister by the name of Keisha Stevens, I believe, um, was just killed last week. She was um, beaten by between four and six men in Philadelphia before she was shot in the head. Um, She's the 19th, between the 19th and 20th transgender woman killed this year. Um, The vast majority, I mean, maybe 16 of the 20 transgender women who have been killed this year have been either black or Latina, right? Um, And so we have to begin the process. And and really, the people who are killing those women are black and Latino men. Um, And they're killing them because they have such a sense of internalized self-hatred that when they are attracted to transgender women, because these are men who are often seeking out these women, when they um, are attracted to them, they feel such shame and stigma that it often actualizes an intimate partner violence. And so these are are not um, issues that will be addressed by hate crimes legislation. This will be addressed by really getting to the root of internalized shame and stigma and the ways it manifests in the violence. So I think um, violence and and economic injustice against trans folks has to be at the center of our analysis. Um, Of course, um, employment non-discrimination ordinances and kind of broad-based non-discrimination ordinance has to be a a part of our analysis. Um, Migration has to be a part of our analysis and how we are tackling the ways that people are experiencing injustice because of the ways that they are migrating. Um, I think that economic justice is imperative to an LGBTQ equity, justice, liberation philosophy um, because many of us, especially for black, for black folks, are living in the, in the South because black people tend to live with black people whether you are LGBT or not. And so, um, and, and tend to be raising children. The Williams Institute came out with a report saying that um, the majority of um, black LGBT households are raising children. 
And these are also places, if you're living in a place like North Carolina, Tennessee, um, Mississippi, where you don't have Medicaid expansion, you don't have access to healthcare, you don't, you're, you're working a low-wage job most likely, right? And so the ways that economic injustice is informing our lives. And so I think that if you can take any issue, you can take any justice issue and overlay an LGBT analysis on it and see how race, class, um, queerness, sexual identity, gender identity, places us more, more and more outside of, um, makes us more and more vulnerable, right? We are more and more impacted the more we overlay our identities over top of, of whatever justice issue we're talking about. And so that's what I think um, the next. The next thing is really analysis building and um, talking about who are the most marginalized and how we can bring them to the center of our analysis. We have a whole nonprofit that you started that you were supposed to talk about. I'm going to kick it back to you with my next question. Tittle, I think it will answer that. The Black Lives Matter movement has garnered national attention. However, scant coverage is given to the founders' explicit call for the creation of a racial justice movement that is both or includes is gender inclusive, LGBTQ inclusive, inclusive of able, disabled, and trans bodies. So how do we ensure that our activism, activism on behalf of black liberation does not become advocacy on the behalf of heterosexual black folks to the exclusion of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters? Well, I don't know if I have the answer to this. Um, it's interesting you raise the question because I preached about this today. Um, we all know Rosa Parks, um, you know, for the role she played in refusing to give up her seat on the uh, in Montgomery and sparking that movement there. But but little attention is focused to Claudette Colvin, right? Who nine months before that did the same thing. Um, but because she was too young, 15 years old, she was uh, too dark, um, she was pregnant by a married man, um, the members of the black religious community in that town and civil rights leaders felt that she wouldn't be a respectable image for white allies to accept. And so Rosa Parks was, um, you know, waited for Rosa Parks. And so there's this, there's this um, issue in the, in the black community right now when everyone's really grabbing hold to this moniker Black Lives Matter, especially black male heterosexual uh, Christian ministers. And I really think this is interesting. Um, who, who oppose marriage equality, they oppose uh, LGBT equality and a range of other, other issues. And I would say early on when people talked about Black Lives Matter and we talked about all of these cases of police brutality, we only heard about the males, the men. And we did not hear a lot about Rakia Boyd and, and um, Sandra Bland and uh, Renisha McBride and so many others. Um, and all of the black women who have lost their lives in police custody. And I, and I think that's, this is a problem we've really um, have to deal with, the way in which 
um, it is in which uh, it has become convenient for many black leaders, black male leaders, black male Christian leaders, to embrace um, this phrase, this this movement, but who I don't know if they would embrace the women who founded the movement. And you know, when you read uh, Alicia Garza and she talks about the way in which Black Lives Matter is a is is an inclusive term. It's about it's about this movement started by you know a woman who is the daughter of um, Nigerian immigrants and two women who self-identify as queer. We really got have to ask ourselves whether all Black Lives Matter, because for some it seems to me that some Black Lives Matter more than others that middle-class black lives matter more than poor black lives, that Christian black lives matter more than black atheist lives and black Muslim lives. And we really have to address this issue internally um, within, within our community. But personally, what I find so refreshing about the Black Lives Movement is that the women are at the forefront. Young women, uh, powerful women, uh, whether it's in Seattle, and I was just in Seattle two weeks ago, um, really seeing, and in, in New York, just seeing all over the country to see the way in which women um, are providing the, the, the vision, the voice uh, for guiding us forward through this maze at a time when we have been so used to looking for the one charismatic black leader, black male leader, right? Um, I really find this very refreshing, personally. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any answers. I'm just a poor black queer girl trying to make it. That's it. That's it. And I think that this is so interesting because, um, in my advocacy, so I came into to activism through a variety of means, but one was through Dr. Simpson's class, where I really dug in deep to black taught me about black feminism, right? And so it's my first kind of intellectual primer around black feminism. And I think that trajectory took me into a space where I was able to hold space with some amazing black folks, young black folks too. I'm talking about 15-year-olds on the south side of Chicago doing work around restorative justice and transformative justice to limit school suspensions. Um, Folks who were doing work with um, formerly incarcerated people and really working to not just um, end mass incarceration, but radically transform and eliminate the ways that we do policing in this country. And so that's, through that space, I was able to, I, I've been able to hold space with amazing black women like Alicia and Patrice and Opal, who founded Black Lives Matter, Charlene Carruthers, who is the national director of the Black Youth Project, um, just amazing, amazing folks. And one of the things that, that rings true, I think, in my interaction with these, with these women, mo many of whom identify as queer, is that the only way that we can ensure the movement is more inclusive than exclusive is to really get a lot of straight black men out of the way. And I struggled with this a lot, especially this weekend, as we celebrated the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March, which I attended when I was seven years old. And I remember, I'm sure, well, it, yes, 
Yes. And so, like, yes. No, not really. And, and I think that's the tension, right? That's the tension is, yes, yes, it was an important cultural marker in having a response to, if we connect the dots, a very um, feeling seamless line between 20 years ago with police violence and today. Yes. <laughs> yes, and I remember... I, I remember my mother making an excuse about why she was, we were sick, and so she made an excuse and said, I'm, she's not going to work, I'm not going to school. Yeah, we're going to go down to the Million Man March. And on this 20th anniversary, having Louis Farrakhan be the convening person, someone with, who has done, I think, incalculable intellectual harm to black women and queer folks, I had to make a decision that I could not be there. And I could not be there, not just because I do not believe, not because I don't believe in the call for justice, and not even that I'm not willing to ask or else what, right? And to be in the numbers that say I want accountability, but because I cannot, I can no longer stand beside um, black men who I call family, who I call kindred, who I am willing to lay down my life for without having a reciprocal relationship. And so, the only way I see us moving past this is to, ha- is to be in community and to trust the analysis. There's an organization called Trust Black Women. Um, and I think that the only way for us to have a movement that is inclusive of the folks who are most impacted and most marginalized um, is to trust black women, right? Is to trust, and not just black women, but black queer, trust black queer and trans folks, trust black immigrants, trust black disabled people, trust, trust the most marginalized black folks, right? And when we do that, I think we get closer to liberation. And so that is, that is um, I think, how I'm, I'm internalizing. I agree with this uh, comment about heterosexual straight men sort of getting out of the way. Uh, It was good for me to hear you say that because it was uh, co-signing what I thought was thinking and imagining. And um, I think this is really important if if we're going to make the kind of radical uh, progress and have the kind of inclusive inclusive vision for the future uh, that we so de- desperately need because uh, we are probably more in the way than we think than we we think we're helping we think we're allies you know but many are in the way and I was glad to, to hear you say that Samantha and I just want to say I'm not saying that like we don't want you at the table like you know I think that we are kin I just I I want I, I want our kinship to be more, to, I want it to be more equitable. So I appreciate, I appreciate straight black men who say yes and. Well, when I hear, when I hear what you're saying, it, it makes me think about my experience coming out of the marriage equality campaign in 2012, having worked with some of the country's leading LGBT organizations and feeling that, um, as a, uh, that we really need to shift from transactional relationships to more transformative relationships. Because what ends up happening is black lead- progressive black leaders, black ministers would always get called in, right, by, you know, the big, 
you know, um, you know, LGBT groups and marriage equality campaigns to assist in moving the issue forward. It was, but after the campaign, there was there were no sort of transformative relationships, or at least the sense was that there were no transformative relationships, and so it was just all transactional. Well. Likewise, I think the same thing is happening, where black straight allies, um, we need to look for transformative relationships with uh, black women, black queer women uh, in the movement and the campaign, rather than these kind of uh, transactional, symbolic relationships. All right, my final question before I open it up to the audience. It's given that it is National Coming Out Day, what words of support or advice would you give to those who are considering coming out as LGBTQ or as a committed ally for equality? I am out, um, and I'll paraphrase something my, my partner said. Um, I am out because I have supportive family, friends, and community. I am out because it is safe for me to be out. I am out because I will not lose my job for being out. I am out because I feel like I can navigate the world with a sense of relative fearlessness and courage, um, both because I know who my ancestors are and because I have community. And that is not everyone's reality, and so, um, for those who can afford to be out, um, I, thank, I thank you for living your truth. And for those who cannot, then we will continue to do this work until we exist in a world where everyone has emotional, cultural, social safety to be able to do so. Thank you, Samantha. Um, you know, one of the things that I find as a pastor and as a clergy leader is so much of the shame that people feel um, is coming from their faith community um, as a pastor. This, this sense that uh, I'm an abomination, uh, that I'm sinful, that I am uh, not loved by God, right? And so you talk about community. Well, there's no worse feeling than this sense that God does not love, accept, affirm, embrace, welcome me. And so I would just tell um, you know, those listening, the only thing that I can say, and as I said in the beginning, and that is that God does not hate, condemn our gay and lesbian LGBTQ sisters and brothers. And don't allow any clergy leader, well-intentioned or not, distort, pervert the scriptures to make you feel otherwise. That, you know, once again, I think what I can do is to help people to understand that these texts, the Sodom and Gomorrah story, Leviticus 18 and 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, all of these texts are condemnations of acts of sexual violence, rape, abuse, and exploitation. All of these texts. There is not one scripture in the Bible that condemns consensual, same-gender loving people. And so for me, I have found that in my conversations with members of my congregation and community, that by walking people through uh, those uh, scriptures and deconstructing the notions that they have been taught and told is really helpful 
and moving them towards a sense of healing and a sense of hope and a sense in which they can embrace themselves and their future. Okay, and now we want to invite our audience to participate um, in the spirit of inclusion, and we want to ensure that everyone has a chance to be heard. And we're asking that you hold your comment or question to one minute or less. Oh, and Tara has a microphone for you. Just one. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Ronald Post Bay, and uh, I'm here because I really want to hear from my community. That's why I'm here. I could be on watching Ravens, but I chose to come down here today. I have uh, two questions, really, it's, it's one. I'd like to know, what is the purpose of the sexual act, and how does the scriptures define the purpose of the sex sexual act? Are you asking what is the purpose of, of sex? Yes. In, okay. Basically, yes. Okay. I am not a the I mean I can I can take a stab at this but I am not a theologian and so I can I don't know what the Bible says about the purpose of sex. Well, basically what is your definition of of the okay. sexual act? So so I actually think and and this is probably um, my hedonism. I believe that the purpose of sex is pleasure. I think that um, procreation, I think that um, yeah, because that's, that's pretty much the other byproduct, right? So it's sex for pleasure and sex for procreation. And so I think that, like, but I, I tend to believe that human beings are innately sexual and that the fact that human beings, the fact that much of our distaste around the innate pleasure that we get from sex has informed our kind of cultural landscape is a problem because it... it um, relegates those who, who do partake in sex for pleasure, right? So like, I think the purpose of sex is pleasure. I think um, that does not necessarily need to be regulated as so long as there are consenting adults, right? And um, so, so, that, so the purpose then is, is so that people are, are fulfilled in the whole of their lives. That's what feels right for me. I don't know if there's some, some scriptural stuff well, on this. Well, I, I, <clears throat> I would embrace multiple reasons for this, and I would ground them in scripture. Pleasure is one, certainly when you read Songs with, of Solomon. With the primary function of sex, the primary function. Yes. Well, this, this is going to depend upon the individual because I passed, I could say, I mean, if I said procreation, then I have many members of my congregation who cannot procreate for a variety of reasons. And so for them, the primary reason for sex might be different. Might be for pleasure, for bonding, for expressing your love to someone. So primary can be probably subjective. Um, you know, depending upon as many people as there are in this room, and it probably would depend on what kind of mood you're in and what season you're in in life. Um, and so I would say there are many different reasons for 
this expression of love and self-actualization. That's what I would say. And I think it's grounded in scripture. You read Song of Solomon, you cannot come away from reading Song of Solomon without coming away with the clear notion that from God's perspective, sex is something that is deeply erot- you know, erotic and pleasure is very much a part of, of this expression and experience. And that that's a good thing, right? So this sort of platonic hierarchy between the four types of love, privileging agape, phileo, and then stargeo, and then eros at the bottom is probably a very problematic stratification. I wouldn't do that because there are seasons in my life. I have, because I have four children, I'm beyond wanting to have sex for procreation. Uh, and so, so there are other priorities you know, for me. So that's what I would say. It depends on every person, brother. First of all, I'm saying the purpose of sex really is, like you said, pleasure comes about. If it wasn't for the, your feelings to have pleasure, you wouldn't have sex. Without those feelings, wouldn't be no sex. Wouldn't mean none at all. But then if you, as you age, you get older, you still have desire, sure. You know, but you, you know, mm-hmm. at a certain age, you stop uh, producing. Sure. Yes. <clears throat> I want to say this, um, and this may, have, may not have been, thank you, it may or may not have been in your mind, but I have to think about the question in light of the topic. Because I was just in a very rather passionate exchange with a group of fellow clergy who tended to reduce this topic to sex and how people had sex and wanting to go into the mechanics of how men sex. And I think this is an unfortunate, problematic circumstance in which people want to reduce humanity and reduce individuals to whether and how they have sex. People are more than the sum total of their body parts. And I think that we do a disservice to the broader issue of LGBTQ rights, equality, marriage equality, uh, same gender loving people by reducing the conversation. And I am in no way suggesting this is where you were going, but the question comes in this broader context that we have got to, in my mind, move away from reducing this issue to how people and whether people have sex. They may not. I meet with many couples, gay and straight, who love one another profoundly and cannot and do not have sexual intercourse. And so I just want to say that I think that this issue is much, it's deeper, it's much more profound than, you know, sex, as as important as sex is. 
Yes, and Dr. Coase, I think that is an incredibly important point, and it's also something I'm struggling with because I, I transitioned out of a, a primary, my primary role used to be around LGBT equality and is now within reproductive rights, justice, and freedom. And so I am deeply struggling now with the ways that LGBT equality has become a sexless movement. And what I think the implication is, is that um, by getting away from sex as something that, I think when we're talking about ACT UP, we're talking about Stonewall, right? We're talking about the ways that there was at one point a push towards sexual liberation, saying specifically that um, sex itself is good and that we should, we should embrace all of the, we should identify and embrace all of the ways that we as people want to experience pleasure and that so long as that pleasure is, again, within the realms of consent and, and transparency and um, communication, right, that there are good ways to experience pleasure that are not socially sanctioned. And so within, so I am, I am also, I, I am in deep agreement and I'm struggling with what it means that, that we are moving, that we have, I don't, think, I don't think we are moving away, I think we have moved away from conversations about sexual liberation as a core part of how we envision LGBT justice. And, and, and the, the, the parallel that I always draw is with, the abortion, with, with abortion, right? That, that the reason I don't think that while we may have a consensus at least a national consensus to some degree that people who are able to experience pregnancy should be able to access abortion. Um, I don't think that the abortion rights movement can get the same play as the LGBT movement because abortion is inherently about sex. And so because we don't wanna talk about like sex and desire, then we can't have a conversation about the ways in which um, the attack on not just LGBT justice, but reproductive freedom is also a conversation about making our movements, our conversations inherently sexless and much more conservative. So I don't know if you have like any thoughts about that. Sharon Letman Hicks is in the building. <laughs> Did you wanna follow up or do you want me to? So you think that my comment was an attempt to continuing this trajectory towards making our LGBT uh, you, you want to embrace more of the sexualization of So I don't the, think you're promising. Okay. Oh. No, no, I'm not saying you are. I'm saying that I think that there's a, a tendency I think that there's just a tendency I think there's an internal struggle between how sex do we want to make the conversation. And I just don't know how to hold the complexity of that. Um, I think by, by um, embracing both, my only concern was I don't want to reduce the conversation mm -hmm. yeah. to sex. Right. Right? I think that certainly we can include and we should do so in a very rich, robust, complex way. Talk about the importance and vitality of that part of the self but let's not reduce who we are to, and, and certainly in my mind, let's not reduce the conversation of LGBT uh, equality to 
whether people have sex, how people have sex. I think that I don't. I think this um, is counterproductive. For the, for the I know I'm not answering your question, but let's let's hold it. Let's hold it in tension, yeah. and let's never feel like we have to ever solve it. Yeah. Right? Let's keep moving, moving forward, holding it in tension. Sharon. <laughs> no, I'm not going to make her jump into that one, just walking in the door. <laughs> Come back to Q&A, but since we do have the executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition here, um, one of the questions I asked is with um, the Supreme Court's ruling granting same-sex marriage equality, where you see the movement now, and maybe talking a little bit about the work that MBJC is engaged with um, in, the, in this moment. So where the LGBT equality movement is specifically? Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, do you know that D.C. to Baltimore is like going from New York to Hawaii? Okay, just wanted to make sure. Um, I think the movement is going to become more multidimensional now. I think for a movement that really started with the HIV um, awareness and crisis to awareness to now reaching a, a, a different level with marriage equality, um, we're still at epidemic levels for HIV for people that look like me. So, and it never changed in 30 years. So it's kind of, again, that forgotten population. So everything from income inequality to um, employment discrimination to housing discrimination, to reproductive justice, to a multitude of issues that impact my organization, the organization that squarely looks at the intersectionality of race and LGBT equality. We wake up every day in the LGBT movement saying, we're black too. And uh, so everything that the Black Lives Matter movement is representing and the LGBT equality movement is representing I live in both worlds every day. So therefore, we're still at the height and the pinnacle of bringing awareness. Um, from a political perspective, the LGBT equality movement has made significant gains in the past decade, but for the top 1%. And whereas corporate America is loving the LGBT equality movement, where the federal government is bringing respect and dignity and recognition to the movement, those whose boots are on the ground and who have to navigate in a lived experience every day, and they happen to have multiple identities, including other uh, oppressed communities, then they are getting it twofold. So it is um, a new day to love out loud as an LGBT community, but you gotta be employable, and you gotta have a roof over your head, and you gotta be able to eat. So as an organization who, and you have to be healthy. So as an organization, we have refocused ourselves into well, health and wellness issues because of the mental, emotional, and stigma issues that still plague our community. We're, um, we're doubling down on the health and wellness issue um, specifically, and looking more at um, how someone can live their whole authentic selves and navigate their multiple identities with a level of equality and equity in 
which identity, not allowing any one identity to trump the other. I was a member of a church here in Baltimore about three years ago, and I made a suggestion because I think every year around December the 1st or something like that, it was to pay tribute to those who have died from HIV AIDS. And I asked the, um, the pastor of that church if she would consider putting in the men's bathroom and the women's bathroom condoms. And indeed, that could be a way that we would make some kind of impact, at least if it's just saving one life, and also to open up the realms of what it means and the stigma attached to HIV, AIDS, and also, you know, for those who are a part of the um, LGBT uh, community. And um, I can say to you that not only did that not happen, but somehow or another, this got out to many of the members of the church, and I know when I'm being pushed aside and ostracized, but I'm saying this to say it is not just at one church. It is many churches. So I am making a suggestion to you and the members of the board if, uh, if indeed this may be something that you would consider. Well, thank you so much for, for the, um, the suggestion. Um, there have been for quite some time campaigns uh, with uh, the black church and HIV AIDS. I'm thinking of the Balm and Gilead uh, project. And we do ours in our congregation the first Sunday in March. Um, I forget when Paul McGilead does theirs, but there are churches all across the country, black churches, do have um, HIV-AIDS awareness. And for us, we do provide free and confidential HIV-AIDS awareness testing after all three of our Sunday services. I do believe there is distribution of condoms. They're not in the lobby of the church, but for folks who come over to the room to be tested, the pastor is tested, staff is tested. You know, we do these, we have testimonies from members of our community and church uh, who have HIV AIDS. And so it's, we definitely have to break the stigma uh, in, in, uh, in the faith community and in the black church around uh, HIV AIDS. And I'm, I don't know, Sharon, I, I'm seeing this a, a little more um, being done in black churches. I don't know what you're saying. From a church perspective, it's um, something I'm observing this coming year. So I wouldn't necessarily say whether it's happening more or less. Historically, HIV in the church has been catered towards the unofficial um, black women. It may get you because a man is being dishonest with you. Um, the movement around HIV awareness now is, and, and I'm going to bring reproductive into it twofold. One is my own commentary. 
young black girls and young black boys, gay or straight, have unprotected sex at the same rate. If you compare the teenage pregnancy rate to the HIV rate for young gay and bisexual men, they're the same. So even from a church perspective, the conversation needs to be human sexuality because young gay boys are not promiscuous and just out there having sex and, and getting HIV. Young teenage black girls who are heterosexual or bisexual are out there having unprotected sex and getting pregnant. So that means our babies are not being educated at the same level of their human sexuality. They're not being educated about the potential of STIs, STDs, depending on what generation you're from. And the reality is we don't talk about sex as black people, period. So HIV is just a symptom. Again, it's not a gay disease. And at this point, it's a black disease because it is, it is symbolic of how we do not discuss human sexuality whether it's through a faith context, a community context, or in our households. So HIV is just a consequence, just like the teenage pregnancy rate being out of control. So the condoms are not just in there for HIV, they're for lack of pregnancy too. And it's not just about condoms, it's about behavior. So until we deal with the fact that the highest increase of HIV is amongst young, black, gay, and bisexual men ages 13, 13 to 24, 13 to 24 at epidemic levels. These babies, 13 to 24, were not born when the epidemic started. And you don't see any quilts anymore. You don't see anybody talking about people dying anymore. So therefore, we have allowed a generation to be born in ignorance and belief that a pill can take care of them. And then they're not, taking care, they're not taking the pill. So now there's PrEP, which I call a gay man's birth control pill. And we have to go overboard to educate them about this pill. And before then, we need to start educating our babies about human sexuality. Because our children, gay, straight, others, male, female, others, are not being made aware of their temple and how to responsibly navigate in this world with their temple. So therefore, it's a much larger conversation, but we do need to start somewhere. So I definitely appreciate the comment. And what makes it much larger is this, one of the second or third groups where the HIV is spreading are the seniors. Mm -hmm. yep. Because with the advent of these little blue pills, you have a lot of seniors getting back in the game. That's how I get into it in my congregation. You know, I really um, lighten, lighten the break the ice because this is not just about that community over there. No, it's about, you know, you know, 60 to 80 year old year olds in the church who and in the community who are back at it because of med medical uh, enhancements. So and it's affecting that community. So I appreciate the charge, and I also, I'd like to charge you. So, so the history of the HIV movement in a lot of um, religious institutions, too, is the story of concerned and invested parishioners really talking
targeting other parishioners, right? So it looks like black women with um, condom packets and lube and and want like little um, palm cards, passing them out in a parking lot after church, right? You can get a thousand free condoms from CDC or from your local health center. They don't ask any questions. I went in and picked up six boxes. There is not enough sex in the world that I will ever have to need six boxes of condoms, um, right? So then you take, you take those free resources and materials that are at our disposal, and you, like, I, I want to charge you with helping if, if, you're, if your um, clergy people are not at a, in a space to have that conversation, then what are some community-based models we can, engage in, we can engage in to ensure that our community is safe, right? So that looks like doing street and it's direct service intervention. And so we often think about that as something that has to be non-profitized, but the, the history and models of direct service intervention within black communities is that particularly black women going into their communities and saying, I see what the issue is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intervene, right? Like, I know where the D-boys are hanging out, I'm going to intervene there, right? It looks like I'm going to pass out condom packets at the church. So I just, I just think that while I appreciate the charge to clergy folks, I also want to charge you with what are some ways we can imagine interventions that don't necessarily require permission. Our time is drawing to a close. So is there a final, I know, is there a final question or comment? Well, good, thank you. All right. Yes. On that note, let's thank our panelists, Sharon Letman Hicks, Devlin Coates, and Samantha Master. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's a good question. I am. I am just starting now working on a book entitled "Practicing Safe Text." because there are many people who are being put in bondage to erroneous readings of the text. So I'm working on a book entitled Practice Safe, Practicing Safe Text. It's a, it's a layperson's guide to biblical interpretation on a range of issues that include uh, not just um, the Bible and homosexuality, but also divorce, because many Preachers have told people, if you've been divorced and remarried, you're in sin. Or adults who, will never, who don't want to get married and who will never get married, but who've been told by their pastor that they cannot have sex if they're not married. And invariably, when I meet with my singles and they want to know, Pastor, you know, how, can I, how should I live saved, single, and satisfied? And they're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I say, well, what does that mean? You know, how do we not have sex? And I say, well, why, do you, why would you do that? And they immediately go to passages of Scripture that use the term fornication and make assumptions about what this means. And so I'm really excited about the piece. I can't ask the question. Just kind of follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I am Delman Coates. And when it comes out, we'll make sure you get it. When, when I'm from the Bible, I give me some simple information inside my local care. Oh. The reason is I don't hold myself um, bondage to my, my denomination. I'm a free, clear thinker, and I like to include others' um, perspective and thoughts on a matter so that we all make an informed decision. 
Thank you. Can you join me in a round of applause for our panelists? And I do want to thank Tara Taylor for her invaluable partnership with the Maryland Commission on Civil Rights and the Pratt Library for hosting this event. And thank you very much.